Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So here's a show about the present moment in employment uh, and very specifically about the fact that people, are, I think, are recalibrating their relationship with the jobs that they have or if they're out of work, the jobs that they either are going to have or not going to seek. And, you know, you can see this turn up in the numbers. Um, you know, millions of adults say that they're not working, sometimes for fear of getting or spreading COVID-19. That's dying down a bit. Businesses were reopening ahead of schools, which meant some parents didn't have childcare, which meant that they couldn't go back to work full time. Some people are uh, receiving more in unemployment benefits than they would in the available jobs. You know, but there's something else going on. Uh, There's just a recalibration of values, I think, too. Uh, A recent Microsoft survey found that more than 40% of workers globally were considering leaving their jobs this year. Blind, an anonymous social network that's popular with tech workers, found that 49% of its users plan to get a new job this year. Now, you know, these are statistics that may or may not hold up to scrutiny, but there's there's a there there, and, and it has something to do with people Um, either wondering whether they're in the right job, whether they really want to be yoked to a specific job, whether they want to just some time to really think about what it is they're doing with their lives. A lot of those things are going on and maybe other things as well. Katie Haney is joining us, a senior writer at The Cut and the author of several books, including her YA novels, Girls Crushed, and the forthcoming The Year I Stopped Trying. Uh, she also wrote a piece about this for The Cut. We're, we're going to talk about that. Also with us uh, is Erin Seck, uh, an assistant professor of sociology and mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. Her new book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality, will be published in October. So, um, you know, Katie, I'm going to have you kind of lead us off and talk a little bit about what it was that was uh, in your essay. What were you, for people who have not read it, um, what were you trying to get across? Sure. So I had noticed and my editors had noticed that there were a bunch of people in our field in media, but also in other fields announcing on Twitter that they were quitting due to burnout, which, you know, I've said this before, but media types are are prone to making announcements when we change jobs. It's sort of what we, what we do, but like the burnout piece felt new and it was sort of interesting to see it being used as this official diagnosis or this reason to quit a job without having another job lined up immediately, um, which is the norm. And this felt in line with certainly my own desire to quit, which was strongest in the in the darkest period of our COVID winter. Um, and I was just interested in that evolution of language and why we use this term to describe something that's fairly ordinary and typical, like wanting to quit your job. Right. And and so, well, Aaron, I mean, I think we need to talk about whether there's something very specific going on here. Um, there, there certainly is, I think, 
an issue of kind of habituation and maybe dehabituation, if that's a word. In other words, if you have a job and there's things you don't like about it and it, it, it really is a lot of stress and pressure, you kind of learn to live alongside that. You know, I mean, you get used to it. Uh, if you don't have it for a while, you all of that stuff suddenly starts to look like a very strange, toxic and unwelcome uh, set of, of variables in your life. And then you're sort of thinking, why would I go back to something like that? Is that part of what's happening here, Aaron? Sure. So we are in this this unprecedented moment where our lives have changed um, and our jobs may have changed, our families may have changed. And uh, that uh, routinely in, in recent history, when we have these moments of uncertainty, leads to greater reflection on what our lives uh, are, what they can be and what we want them to be. And so in this time of COVID, there was a lot of reflection about am I in the line of work that I want to be or need to be? And especially, uh, my research has found, people who had some kind of job instability were more likely to consider these, these questions about what they want in their lives and what they want out of their jobs. So, so say that again, because I think that's really interesting and maybe not expect, expected. Talk, talk about what that means, because it seems counterintuitive. Sure. So it is counterintuitive because the the narratives that uh, that are prominent within academic literature and popular uh, literature on the topic of job instability is that if people are encountering job instability, they're going to be even more primed to seek the most economically viable, stable uh, opportunities they can and grab at them as quickly as they can. Um, but what what I find in my research alongside um, Sophie Hiltner is that um, those who have experienced job instability during COVID, um, these are college educated workers who have either um, been furloughed or lost a job temporarily, are more interested in things like work-life balance and finding meaning in their work than people whose jobs were stable over the course of the pandemic. And so, Katie, um, tell your own story about this. What's your own relationship to this question? Well, I think that this is something that resonates, especially with, I mean, not especially, but for me, what it certainly resonates with the media experience. Um, journalism is not a stable field to be in, and it hasn't been for some time. Uh, we saw lots of layoffs in the past few years as various media companies buy each other up and uh, then, you know, experience layoffs, of course, during the pandemic, like so many industries did. And I think that to Aaron's point, it sort of feels like this moment of wondering, well, if, if my job doesn't feel like they owe me anything, why should I feel like that I owe them so much? Um, and so there's this moment of thinking like maybe what I really want is just something that I can count on a little bit more. Maybe I want something with a little bit more job security, something that will allow me the remote flexibility that I've come to appreciate during the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, that for me personally, the the security aspect definitely comes up. I mean, I feel secure right now, but it, it's, it's never a sure bet with journalism. And um, when the pandemic is, you know, prompting so many existential questions, I think it's normal and expected to wonder, is this what I want to be doing with my time? Or is there something that would maybe treat me a little bit better? 
Yeah, you know, and Katie, I think also journalism is one of the professions that has a kind of romanticization uh, of work associated with it, mm. maybe in a way that doesn't exist in certain other areas. And I mean, look, so I'll just be the dinosaur that I am and, and say, you know, I mean, I started in a newspaper in 1976. Uh, I was fresh out of an Ivy League college and they offered me $8,500 a year, which was a really bad salary even in 1976. And it was really long hours. I worked nominally from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., but it was really like way longer than that. But it had the feeling, I don't know, I, lo- I don't look back on that. I mean, I knew that there were things about it that sucked at the time, but it was also sort of my apprenticeship. And it was, you know, I mean, I don't know. You watch a movie like Spotlight and what are they showing you? These people who are working on Christmas Eve and New Year's Day morning and, you know, and because they have to get this story done. It's the most important thing in the world. I mean, there are certain jobs where you're not really supposed to think about how burdensome they are or the degree to which they interfere with your life. Mark Ruffalo's character in Spotlight, he's separated from his wife, it's clear, because he can't, you know, really kind of modulate uh, his commitment to his work in an effective way. So I, I don't know. I feel like people in our line of work, you, you sort of have to deal with the fact that you're you're not supposed to mind certain things. Absolutely. And I, and I think that in journalism particularly, I don't want to, you know, discount the many other industries that were so right. hard hit by the pandemic, but um, it is something that we are seeing in media, people standing up and saying, this is not good enough anymore. There was just a protest the other night on Anna Winter's house um, because, uh, you know, union members holding up signs that said prestige, you can't eat prestige for dinner. It's one thing to work for this legacy publication and have like you said, this romanticized idea of what it means to be a journalist, but that doesn't equate necessarily or often to fair pay. So, Aaron, you know, that that sort of circles back to the question. I mean, I I think really maybe we're talking not about one phenomenon, but a group of phenomena that intersect with one another. I mean, there is this kind of idea of the YOLO economy. You only live once. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be give, giving that life to something that doesn't really have any meaning for you and is burdensome, burdensome or toxic. Um, there's also kind of that capitalism is broken uh, argument that, well, there just are a lot of jobs that really barely pay a living wage uh, or, and certainly don't pay a wage that justifies the demands that the job makes. I don't know, maybe you can say a little bit more about how how you see this. I mean, how many different things are playing in to this moment where people don't necessarily feel as avid uh, about any specific type of employment? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're right that there is a lot of um, interwoven uh, cultural and economic forces at play here. And uh, 40 years ago, what it meant to be a professional, those who have college degrees, who uh, who expected to be in the professional labor force for their career, uh, what it was like to be a worker then is really different from what it looks like to be a worker now. So even those with college degrees are facing unprecedented precarity like that um, uh, you and Katie have spoken about. And that has to do with a lot of things. So one of them is to do with the changes in the economy, um, the the, the structuring of how uh, workers are relating to their employers and how employers are thinking about their workers. So instead of thinking about workers as coming in uh, at the ground level and expecting to nurture those workers through the ranks, there's more of an expectation expectation of fluctuation in and out um, of corporations, um, uh, factors like globalization and reductions in um, regulation.
regulation has meant that uh, that there's more freedom for organizations to uh, have these temporary positions or part-time positions or those that lack benefits. And that creates a tremendous amount of instability and insecurity for workers. Alongside of that, we have a reduction in the uh, social safety nets, uh, things like reductions in uh, unemployment and changes to uh, the welfare systems have made it even more unstable for workers who might be between jobs or looking for other jobs. And then alongside that, we have these really interesting cultural changes. So since about the, the 1970s, there's this huge growth in the expectation for individualism and self-expression, uh, not only in the kinds of things we consume, but who we are and what we do in everything from the covers of our, of our cell phones to our shoelaces to uh, what we do as our, as our career are supposed to be inherently and explicitly self-expressive. And so uh, for that reason, we have this conflation of a, uh, of a lot of interesting processes that I think have led and exacerbated a lot of the insecurity well, yeah, I, and I think there's a story being told, Aaron, uh, by companies about this. And sometimes maybe it's even a well-meaning story. And let me give you a specific example. Uh, yeah, I think it was yesterday. I have lost track of time. But yesterday, uh, I had filled out an online customer survey satisfaction. I, I mean, I could even be specific. I'd been to CVS. And they you know, I put my email thing. There's this thing, you know, how was your experience? And I don't usually answer them, except that I had kind of an experience that I didn't like and I wanted to kind of document it. Um, specifically, the pharmacist was not wearing a mask. I mean, the guy at the hardware store next, uh, next door was wearing a mask. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> anyway, I fill out this survey, and it turns out they give it right to the pharmacist. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And I, and I looked up the company. This is the important part. And it's called the company that does the survey is called Medallia. And they do a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, and so I went on Medallia's uh, website, and it's, they're talking about how – first of all, they call their employees medallions. Um, and like it's like an extraterrestrial race or something. And they say every medallion brings their whole self to work to create a culture of inclusion, creativity, and innovation. Now, I was also doing some research, research for this show because there's a new Whole Foods opening not too far from uh, where I'm sitting right now. And, and they've slowed down their opening. And I'm pretty sure it's because they can't hire enough workers to staff this new Whole Foods. Uh, I don't have any proof of that. It's just an instinct. But anyway, I go on the Whole Foods website. And guess what they say? Lo leave your suit at home. Bring your whole self to work. Our behind-the-scenes effort is what makes us leaders uh, of quality and innovation uh, within the grocery industry. Well, you know, Aaron, so that's one of the promises being made. You could bring your whole self to work, which, first of all, I think is kind of a devil's bargain. Um, you know, I don't know if I want to bring my whole self to work. There might be some parts of myself that I would just assume keep to myself, uh, as the saying goes. And the other one is, I don't even think that's true. I don't think you can bring your whole self to work. I think there's going to be stuff that, that, that clashes with the corporate culture. And I, I'm saying that in reaction to your comment about how we've been kind of promised and sold on a world of individuality. Uh, and, and I'm not sure workforces are as tolerant of individuality as they even maybe claim to be. That's a great point. So I think there's a bifurcation happening. So on the one hand, there's processes like you're talking about where companies are expecting people to bring their whole self to their jobs. So there's advertises, advertisements, advertisements for baristas at Starbucks, for example, that say, you know, come and find your passion in coffee and, and have it be here. And companies are, are not stupid in the way that they're articulating that because um, 
if you encounter a service worker that is excited and interested in the work that they're doing, uh, that is beneficial to the company. That increases sales, that helps um, promote the item being sold. And so companies really want uh, workers who are passionate about the work that they're doing, who, who find fulfillment in the work that's being done. And so uh, whether or not someone feels able to express their whole selves as a barista or as a worker at Whole Foods um, is, is one matter, but there's a lot of benefit that organizations uh, are able to, uh, to, to, to glean from people who come in to the work excited. Um, but there's this other piece of it, which is people who really are interested and, and invested in passion about the work that they do. They also, uh, in, in my book, I argue, experience exploitation um, of, of, that of that expression, of that passion, but in a slightly different way. Yeah, it's kind of what Katie and I were talking about before with journalists. A lot of us are really, really passionate uh, and are willing to work incredible hours. Uh, that may not be a good thing and it may be exploitable. All right, let's take a quick break. I, I want to talk to Katie also about uh, what we were just talking about, but I need a break. Uh, Katie Haney and uh, Aaron Seck will be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're talking about this moment in the history of employment and whether or not this moment constitutes kind of a, a recalibration or, or a rethinking for a lot of people of their relationship to the idea of work, um, career, profession, vocation. Um, so, um, and we're talking with Katie Haney, uh, a senior writer at The Cut and author of several books, including Girl Crushed and the forthcoming The Year I Stopped Trying. Aaron Sekizy, an assistant professor of sociology and mechanical engineering at the University of Michi Michigan. Her new book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality will be published in October. So, you know, Katie, I want to kind of build on what Aaron was saying before. One of the things that I did to get ready for this show, we can't run it because we'd have to bleep every other word, but I, I rewatched Chris Rock's kind of famous meditation on the difference between a job uh, and a career. Uh, and and he, he talks, one of the things he says is, you know, when you have a career, time goes by really fast. And you suddenly look at your watch and go, wow, it's five 
5.30, you know, and there's so much I'm, I'm excited to get. I got to come in early tomorrow and get this other stuff done. Um, and when you have a job, time moves really slowly and you look at your watch and you think it's 9.08? How can it only be 9.08, you know? And he says, you ask everybody else what time it is to whoever says it's 9.15. That's the person who's right. The later you are, the better. But, you know, what he doesn't really explore is what Aaron was talking about and I think what you and I were talking about too, which is having a job that's very stimulating, you know, and having a job that, yes, time can go by very, very quickly, that's really good, but there's a, a trap there, too. Time can go by really quickly, and then before you know it, nothing else in your life has happened but your job. Right. And I think that for a lot of people over the past year, at least, you know, white-collar workers who were able to transition into remote work, working from home, they sort of lost access to that exciting community part passion part of the job. I mean, there are Zoom meetings are uniquely draining, um, like scientifically uniquely draining, and we were all forced to endure so many of them over the past year. And in, you know, along with that, there was the absence of the camaraderie that comes with working in a newsroom, for example, or, or with your fellow employees. And so, I think it's easy when you're home alone doing remote work to lose even that one part that makes the longer hours, the lower pay, and some of those pieces feel worth it in better times. And, and I think also there's a word that is starting to get used about all this, and I'd like both of you to react to it, but Katie, while I have you right now, and that's the word demoralization. You know, th there is... You know, we can talk about sort of pay inequities and they're an issue. We can talk about, you know, very specific kinds of structural problems worth work. And those things are real legitimate issues, you know. But there's also, I think, this other kind of creeping sense of demoralization. Uh, and and it, 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 you know, I think it's Anne Helen Peterson who I read who said that's what unites the you know, underpaid pandemic unemployed worker with the adequately paid COVID essential worker and the more than adequately paid you know, work for higher knowledge worker, it, there, if there's one thing, there is this kind of sense of, of demoralization. It's hard to quantify or even qualify what that means. But, but Katie, I feel like it means something. Absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things I wanted to point out in the piece is that I do think that that is felt to varying extents by all workers over the past year. But where burnout is sort of a luxury is that people in white collar professions uh, people who are, you know, decently paid like myself could, in theory, I wouldn't do it, but could in theory quit and afford to, you know, live through the next month. Whereas, say, uh, food delivery workers who were in huge demand over the past year um, can't afford to do so and are being paid very, very little and tipped very badly during this past year when we're supposedly saying these are essential workers, thank you, we, we're so appreciative, but that's not being borne out in any material way. Right. So, Aaron, there's this question that I always ask in a very annoying way, and I'm going to annoy you with my question, uh, as I've annoyed so many other people with it. There's a term I have, the narcissism of the present moment, where we have a, I have, we have a tendency to think this, this is this is unique. This is unusual. This is unprecedented. This is the worst thing that ever happened. I mean, things like that. Now, in 2009, 
uh, there was an article in Men's Health magazine called Meaning is the New Money. And it was about really the, the whole quest that people had. Uh, well, it was mostly men because it was men's health for jobs that had meaning that either lost their jobs or their jobs had become worth less because of this huge economic contraction that had gone in 2008 or, you know, a whole, whole bunch of things that or the precariousness or whatever. And, and there just wasn't that much money in general uh, existing in American society also because of this big economic contraction. And so they were thinking, like, I'd rather be a church organist you know, than a paralegal, even though I'm not going to get as much money. Um, and I know about this article because I wrote it. But um, but it makes me wonder, like, Aaron, how do you feel this moment's different from that moment? Or is this kind of a cycle we go through? Uh, it is very similar to other moments in time, um, like the Great Recession, where uh, people are taking stock of uh, what opportunities they have available, what is in front of them, and what, where they want to go in the future. So I think it is similar in that it is producing um, these, these moments of reflection. Uh, it is different in the content, of course. So this isn't only an economic issue. It's a, it's a process where people have been um, losing loved ones and um, communities and uh, senses of place and purpose uh, that has, I think, even deepened the sense of, of who am I and where should my uh, life go from here. Right. And, and uh, you know, I guess the other thing is, and we're, we're, we've been kind of dancing around this, but, but Katie, one transition that happened, and you mentioned it, I think, in your piece, is th- there was a time, it's hard to pin this to the exact decades and stuff, but there was a time in which work was understood differently. It was like this thing you had to do. You know, that was, it was this thing you had to do to get money, and then you'd go home and, you know, you'd hopefully light up your barbecue or whatever it was you were going to do, and, and, and quote, unquote, real life would begin. You know, you know, and in some time, I would sort of pin it, you know, in kind of the last quarter of the 20th century, there became this idea, no, work is achievement. Work is work is this thing that you can really regard not as a necessary interruption in your real life in order to acquire enough money to have your real life, but work is a really big part of your real life. It's as important and as, as exciting and fulfilling as anything else, or it could be, it should be. Uh, can you just react to that idea a little bit? Is that sort of what leads us into the conversation we're having now? Yeah, I mean, I want to introduce here a text that I wrote about in the piece, which is uh, The Burnout Society uh, by a Korean-born German philosopher named Byung-Chul Han. And he wrote this in 2010. It was translated into English in 2015, but feels very prophetic for the past year, certainly. And, And one thing he talks about is how once our society was absent of this clear external threat in the form of well, he says disease. This was before the pandemic. Um, you know, disease. Um, you know, you know. Once the Cold War had ended, we didn't have this sort of immediate, maybe military threat domestically. At least, we sort of turned to work and turned inward to say, okay, now we are most focused on achievement. Um, it's no longer about survival. It's about anything is possible. And so his, you know, book is about the idea that when we say that nothing is impossible that turns into nothing is possible in a in a depressed or overworked individual because if you're not achieving the most then it's almost like you're achieving nothing um and so his he calls this a crisis of excess positivity and that i think dovetails nicely with the explosion of the self-help industry and the sort of like lean in mentality and these um 
these popularized theories that say, yes, work can and should be everything to you. If you, you know, if you love your job, you're never, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, and, and that creates extraordinary pressure for people who might just want to have a job that pays them decently, gives them benefits and allows them to have, a, you know, a high quality of life. And I think people are thinking a lot about those questions in particular over the past year. Yeah, I think if you're, you are your mo- most, your, you are mostly, most yourself, your true self, when you're kayaking, then there's no point in trying to convince yourself that you're mostly your true self uh, when you are working. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we've got uh, some uh, interesting stuff we want to explore with this, these two wonderful guests. Uh, what's going to happen during this break is some people are going to come on and they're going to ask you to support this show and this station with your pledges. And I won't lie to you, this uh, little pledge drive, a mini pledge drive, it has not been going well. So we really need your help right now. So uh, if, if you are in a financial position because of your job or whatever uh, to uh, make a pledge to public radio uh, during this show, uh, that's a great thing for you to do. You're listening to The Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Ray Hardman here with Diane Orson, and uh, we're enjoying the show with you. And we're dropping in just to ask for your support during this little end-of-the-year mini-campaign to help keep The Colin McEnroe Show and everything you listen to on Connecticut Public Radio uh, here in the black, so to speak. So we want to hear from you. The phone number is 1-800-584-2788. You can go online to wnpr.org. Lots of reasons to become a member. Here's one that we're Diane and I are particularly fond of, is that if we can reach $75,000 by the end of Thursday, we are going to take a day off this membership campaign. So that's really a a great thing that we can uh, uh, make sure that we get more programming in and also reach our goals. So consider that, and we'll talk about some thank you gifts in just a moment, 1-800-584-2788. Stay with us. We'll be going back to the Colin McEnroe Show in just a moment. Colin's been on the air for about 10 years on Connecticut Public Radio, and if you're listening right now, you're probably a fan. He's unique He's here, and that's because other people during membership campaigns like this have stepped forward to make their pledges of support. We're hoping if you're a fan of The Colin McEnroe Show, the unique topics, the incredible insight that he offers, and the surprising uh, topics he often chooses for his shows, we hope you won't take that for granted. Other people have brought the show to you by becoming members in the past, and we hope that you'll join them now. Our number is 1-800-584-2788. You can go online to wnpr.org and make your pledge, and we hope that you'll do that right now because, as Ray's saying, if we can reach that $75,000 goal by Thursday, uh, our fundraising will end and we will be membership fundraising free on Friday. This is a new thank you item that I want to thank you gift item that I want to talk about real quickly. And it's the Connecticut public. It's actually the new and improved Connecticut public radio pet dish. This is a ceramic Mm. pet dish with the logo. Uh, You can put food, you can put water in there. Uh, This is a a gift for $15 a month or $180 all at once. And here's the cool thing. 
part of that contribution is going to help the Connecticut Humane Society provide medical care and vaccination for pets in need all over the state. They have little um, mini places where uh, pets can come in and get vaccinated. It's going to help those pets. So this is a great way to go if you really want to do something above and beyond. The uh, pet dish for $15 a month is a great gift. 1-800-584-2788. Listen to the Colin McEnroe show and he gets your imagination going. Um, Maybe you listen to Colin and then maybe join us again for news in the evening. Public radio may be your companion on and off throughout the day, your pal as you drive in and out of work if you're back at work in person these days. We are asking you during this uh, membership campaign for Connecticut Public that you step forward, make your pledge in whatever amount you can comfortably afford. We have generous listeners who will pledge up in the hundreds or thousands of dollars, and we welcome those gifts from first-time uh, members who may not be able to reach that amount, And we, we, but we invite them to join us as well, because this station is built one call at a time, one person at a time, and that's how it's worked for this long, and that's how long we hope it will continue into the future. So please do your part, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org and make your pledge. You know, with COVID restrictions easing here, you may think about having people over to the house to entertain finally uh, after so long. Here's a great thank you item that I can tell you about. For $10 a month, it's a pair of Connecticut Public Radio pint glasses. It has the Connecticut Public Radio logo on one side and the, quote, truth isn't an acquired taste on the reverse, uh, we'll send you a pair of those for $10 a month. And you know what? $10 a month is going to pay for a lot of programming here at Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, we do things uh, as cheaply, not cheaply, what's the word I'm looking for? Frugally as mm-hmm. we possibly can. So Wisely. We, exactly. So we want you to uh, to come on board, become part of what we do here at Connecticut Public with that uh, subscription, that uh, membership at $10 a month. Look, without your support, we would not be here today. We would not be bringing you the Colin McEnroe, Colin McEnroe Show or National Public Radio or anything that we do here. It's because of people like you stepping forward and giving Giving $10 a month, $15 a month. That's how we've been able to do it, and we want to continue into the future. You have that opportunity right now when you call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org, and thanks. We're going to be with Katie and Aaron in just a second here, but i got to say some thank yous. Uh, because there's people who work here and they work really hard, and I, I hope they well. I, I you never know really what people are thinking about their jobs. So uh, Kat Pastor is the technical producer of this show. Uh, she's uh, terrific, and she's doing a great uh, job on this show today. Uh, and the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, uh, and uh, the producer of this episode, and somebody who puts her heart and soul into everything she does is Betsy Kaplan. Uh, and we are going to segue right now into an essay by. The aforementioned Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Here it goes. I recently decided to leave my job as Colin's producer, which is one reason I wanted to produce today's show. I want to understand why so many seemingly sane people are deciding to embrace the uncertainty of leaving one job without solid plans for another one in place. In my case, I leave with mixed emotions. I like my job, I like to work, and I like my work family. Part of me thinks I just need a long summer vacation to refill my empty tank, the kind of time it's hard to get with a full-time job. But the few weeks per year that used to be adequate no longer feel like enough. That's why I know something else is going on. 
I enjoyed working remotely at the beginning of the pandemic. I was more productive, and I got to see my husband more often. I'm not sure when I started feeling more anxious and uninspired, or when the line between work and play disappeared. One clue might have been when I started walking so much that I injured my ankle tendon from overuse. Or maybe the bare bones of work lost some of its luster in the absence of the wonderfully quirky people associated with that work. For whatever reason, work is taking up too much headspace these days. All I think about is churning out a new show every third day at the expense of everything else that doesn't have a deadline. The thing is, the job hasn't changed. I've been doing this for 10 years and liking it. I've changed. I've always been aware of the precariousness of life, partly because I lost my brother, my father, and the only grandparent I ever knew, all while in my early 20s, and also because of the many years I witnessed it as a young nurse in an ICU. Now I'm witnessing that precariousness all around me, and I feel an urgency to stop putting off things until another day. I'm suddenly more attuned to the reality that another day may not come. So I've decided to take a summer away from work. It might be a colossal mistake, but I'm willing to give up a job I like to get the time I want, to think, to explore, to play, and to just do some of those things I keep putting off until later. To just be for a little while. I will get back to work in the fall. I'm just not yet sure what that will look like. What? I wasn't told about that. I was given a completely different script for this essay. No, I mean, obviously, we knew this was coming, and we will be talking uh, about Betsy Kaplan and what she has meant to the show, and specifically to me at some other time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm so glad that we did do this essay. I'm not particularly happy about its content because uh, Betsy Kaplan is a, a truly an indispensable person uh, in my life. So, um, Although apparently I'm going to have to disprove that somehow. But I want to have the guests react to it. And before I do that, I want to reintroduce you to the guest, Katie Haney, senior writer at The Cut uh, and the author of several books, including Girl Crushed and the forthcoming The Year I Stopped Trying. Uh, She wrote about uh, this topic in in The Cut. Uh, Aaron Seck is a... um, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Mechanical Engineering at the University of Michigan. In her new book, The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality, will be published in October. So, Katie, maybe go first. Uh, You know, I'd just love to sort of get your thoughts on what you just heard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel happy for Betsy. I don't know her, but it just listening to that makes me feel like that it's it's a brave choice to make. I mean, we are definitely taught to treat work and having work lined up as the sort of foremost concern in our lives. And I think it's really brave to, to, you know, step forward without that safety net. Um, It's a, it's a privilege too. And it's, but it's just, you know, an exciting thing to do. And I think that if there's any silver lining to be found in the sort of existentialism of the past year, it is that sense of wonder and reordering and maybe um, a reattunement to one's quality of life and and what that looks like. And I can only hope that that will eventually uh, lead to some more systemic changes in the way that our society structures work and pays for work. All right. Uh, How about you, Erin? Just to react to what you just heard. Yeah, I, I agree with Katie and um, applaud Betsy for um, thinking carefully about these issues and and where she is and where she wants to go. I think it's really notable that this is uh, a reaction that 
um, is in need of an essay. Um, <laughs> because uh, if we think really abstractly about our work, um, we would want it to be a place where we put ourselves and our interests outside of our paid employment first. And uh, the fact that we have to really think hard to reorient ourselves to say, I'm going to put the things that are not around my paid employment first tells us how central um, uh, our work is expected to be in our sense of self. Um, this idea of following our passion is, is precisely the idea that we, that we find meaning in our work, that work becomes the central place that we are supposed to find meaning. And if that uh, meaning dissolves, if that job goes away, if we find ourselves in a position where we are physically, emotionally, or mentally unable to work anymore, it not only impacts our paycheck, our economic security, but often it undermines our sense of self and who we are and where we want to be in the future. And so um, it really is a, a, a remarkable um, a look into uh, the, the power that work can have over our sense of self in a way that, that can be really positive when it goes really well, but also can be um, uh, really troublesome for ourselves and for the broader society. Um, when it doesn't go so well. Yeah, I do. I, this may be more inside baseball than I'm, I should even be saying, but I don't think so. So the first time we had a conversation about this uh, was months ago, uh, and we met uh, on, a, a, I think, a Sunday, and um, and we wound up, uh, it, it, we needed to meet outside because of the pandemic. And uh, I picked a place because they knew it was going to rain. So I picked a place, it's called the Hillstead, that has this these beautiful, beautiful porches with rocking chairs in them, covered porches, because uh, we needed to be outside. And so we started talking about this and the worst downpour <laughs> I have ever seen in my life is just it's like a waterfall is just going down right in front of us off the roof and I'm getting this news I mean by then I already knew what she was thinking about and and it really was troubling to me in a lot of different ways mainly selfish ways but we had a series of conversations about it and the last one that we had she was talking about it very differently, the way she talks about it in that essay, you know, and, and that's – it is a little bit more of that YOLO spirit. I, I want time to do things. It's not that I, I have to go find this other job that's going to be better than this job. I want times to do things that are important to me that aren't necessarily rewardable in the way that work is rewardable. Uh, you know, they, they, I want to be rewarded in other ways other than a, a paycheck for a while. And I, I said at that time, OK, that's a totally healthy thing I can completely applaud that even though I'm losing my senior producer. But I, I want to also spend a little time here just talking about the other part of this, which is, you know, and Katie, this is something that, that you've commented on too, that the word quitting, you know, is is mostly not a word we think of positively, right? I mean, you know, it, it, its main connotations is, oh, you're quitting, you know. Uh, now, if you're quitting smoking, that's a good thing. Um, but, uh, but in a way, I think we've allowed quitting to be branded in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, it, like you said, it's it's had a very negative connotation. And so I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing burnout cited more and more when it's it's not, it, it adds a little texture to when someone says something that might otherwise just sound like, you know, I quit, <laughs> like a huff. Um, it, it says, no, this the conditions of my work have made it so that I have no other choice, essentially, but allows the person to still do so on their own terms. 
Um, and I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it, it certainly has expanded the definition of burnout beyond maybe where it originally began in clinical literature. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, we're moving in a direction where saying no to things, including jobs, is more welcomed or at least more understood among the working class, the, you know, maybe not the bosses in question, but but the employee side of the equation. Um, and, and this language is helping facilitate that. You know, Aaron, I think there's an, a way that it's no accident that quitting has uh, negative connotations because, in fact, in a capitalist system, there's an incentive for employers to want you to feel bad about the idea of quitting. I mean, they want to decide when you when you start your job and when you stop it. And so quitting is a kind of empowerment that probably makes uh, them a little uneasy. Yeah, absolutely. And they want people who are dedicated and willing to uh, devote themselves to their work. And um, that is even more important with the expectation that workers do um, 40, 50, 60 hours a week routinely in the context of white collar work. Um, In one of the experiments I do for this book, I actually give people um, uh, mock applications and ask them to rate whether they would be interested in hiring applicants for jobs, depending on what they've articulated as an interest in the line of work. Um, And I do a couple of different iterations. One is for an accounting job at an IT firm, and another one is uh, for a community uh, engagement worker in, an, in a community nonprofit. And in both cases, um, people who saw the applicants who expressed passion for the work that they were doing were more interested in hiring that applicant than somebody who um, saw a, a, an applicant who was interested in the company, who was interested in the salary, who was interested in location. And the reason why is because they thought that if they were connected to the work, if they were personally uh, invested and passionate about it, they would not only be harder workers, but they would be willing to take on additional responsibilities without an increase in pay. So it's not it's not coincidental that companies are interested in people who are all in personally and professionally to their job. They they do understand that they're uh, going to get uh, more hours and and uh, more work out of people um, if if they have that sense of commitment. You know, and this is sort of a separate conversation and we have almost no time left anyway, but it's sort of worth noting that there's some anxiety kind of at the economics level, the business reporting level, about what, what does it mean right now that in fact people aren't taking jobs that are that are available to them? You know, is it going to hurt the economic recovery? The, the recovery has kind of everything else in place that it needs for an economic recovery, but if it doesn't have workers, so you can't open the new Whole Foods or whatever, then that's going to be a problem. And then there's this whole other question of, uh, well, what are they going to do about that? Well, they got to make the jobs better. Um, they got to pay more. And and uh, you know, I think all of us look at that and go, well, good. That their jo- job should be worth doing. Although, Aaron, uh, we only have like about a minute left. But I mean, the likelihood is that they will pass on the cost of this to <laughs> to us. In other words, if a worker costs them more money than whatever it is we get from them, they're going to charge us more. 
Right. I mean, uh, that's sort of historically what has happened. And uh, this is a, such an important moment to think not only about how we raise wages and, and make work um, less burnout prone, but how we think about changing the structure of work more broadly, increasing opportunities for, um, for safety nets uh, and bringing more collective conversations about how do we support workers across the labor force, not just those who are privileged um, by their uh, education. Level. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, but thanks to Katie Haney. Uh, thanks to Aaron Seck. Uh, and thanks, uh, obviously, to everybody who helped out here. And uh, I'm going to go uh, stand in front of an oncoming uh, trailer truck. No, I won't do that. I, I can find another senior producer. I, I, I think I think I could maybe maybe I can find another senior producer. I think I'll be OK. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not worried. No, I'm seriously not. I'm not worried. All right. though. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Diane Orson, and I'm here with Ray Hardman, and we are taking just a few minutes from the programming uh, because we are in the midst of a brief membership campaign. We are inviting you to support Colin's show and all the news and information that you find when you turn to Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, we have a special uh, incentive right now, which is that if we can meet our $75,000 goal by Thursday, we will not be fundraising on Friday. So if you're listening now and can take just a moment to make your call to 1-800-584-2788 or go online to WNPR.org and help us get closer to that goal, we would greatly appreciate it. You know, I've been working from home uh, through most of the pandemic, occasionally popping into the studio. And I I have to say, when we finally get back to everyone being in the studio, one of the things I'm really going to look forward to is the Colin McEnroe show, because I got to say, over the years, it's been so fun to see who's going to come in. Sometimes it's animals, sometimes it's musicians, <laughs> sometimes it's famous actors. So that was one of the things I really missed about about being at home all this time. Um, but it just shows, you know, the the vivid mind of Colin McEnroe and and the wonderful. Uh, producers that come up with these really cool programs. It's really something special here. It's only here and it does need your support. Call in and help pay for just some of that by calling 1-800-584-2788 or going online to WNPR.org. We're so glad you're with us and listening this afternoon to the Colin McEnroe Show. As we said, this is a brief intermission as we invite you to support Colin and all the programming on Connecticut Public Broadcasting. Uh, we have all kinds of thank you gifts. If you're a listener, you know that we have the mugs and the T-shirts and the books and all kinds of stuff we can send your way. And you can look at those online at WNPR.org. Choose one and make your pledge of support. Um, You could also just give us a call and speak to someone at 1-800-584-2788. But we do hope you will make your pledge right now and keep Colin's show and all the programming you rely on here for you. 
We do have some thank you gifts, and we have a Colin McEnroe uh, ceramic mug that we can send oh, you, cool. if you if you want to call in and become a member at $6 a month. Uh, it has Colin's likeness on one side and has the Connecticut Public logo on the other. This is a 16-ounce ceramic mug that we can send you as a way of saying thanks. And you know what? $6 is going to pay for a lot of programming here at Connecticut Public Radio, and that's really what it's all about. That's why we're asking you to step forward right now at one 800 584 88. You can go online safely and securely at WNPR.org.